welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. All right, friends. Well, I am uh, excited to get to continue in our time uh, in the book of John. We've been going through this sermon series called Life with Jesus for about a year now. And the whole point of this time in the gospel of John is to look at people who did life with Jesus. John was one of Jesus' best friends. And to ask the question, what does it mean for us to live out a life with Jesus? What does it mean for us to experience life with Jesus in our everyday lives. And so today our hope is that you would experience life with Jesus even now as we spend time together so that you would be able to experience and help other people experience life with Jesus when we go from here. This is one of the most famous and well-known stories maybe in all of scripture. And the temptation for us is to relax a little bit, to, to rest on the fact that we know this story, that, that we have read this story over and over again. And I would like just to take a moment before we jump in to ask you to allow the text to read you today rather than the other way around. You've, you've read this story again and again. You've heard the story over and over. But what would it be like for us to allow this story to read us and to reveal something new to us? Uh, Let's begin just with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to worship you, to learn from you, to hear from you. Lord, I ask that you would uh, calm my heart right now as we begin this time, that you would give me words to say, that you would keep me from saying words that you don't want me to say. Lord, may the, the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my God, my my rock and my redeemer. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be able to hear from you today, that we would hear what you are truly saying to us in this this story, in this text, not just what we want you to be saying or what we think you're saying. Lord, we ask that we would have our eyes open to see you for who you truly are and that we would be transformed, that as we behold your glory, we would begin to become more like you. So we say, speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. I was really nervous this particular day. I thought that maybe he might just barge in and be highly critical from the outset. Or, or maybe he would come with a bunch of questions that I wasn't able to adequately answer. Or perhaps maybe he would only have eyes to see the things that weren't right. It was, after all, his family's legacy. See, I had worked for his company for a couple of years at this point, But on this day, I was nervous like never before because Dan Cathy, the president and CEO and son of the founder of Chick-fil-A, was coming to my restaurant where I was one of the leaders. But when he showed up, he took me by surprise. First, because he didn't walk straight inside. Instead, we, we saw him pull up in his car and get out of the car. And instead of walking into the restaurant, he walked around the restaurant bending over to to pick up cigarette butts and straw wrappers. And once he had made a full lap, he deposited his handful of trash into the garbage and then came inside. He went straight to the sink and washed his hands. And before any of us got a chance to say hello, he turned right back around and went into the dining room. He started doing what we call table touch-ins. I said call in the present tense. That was five years ago, y'all. What we used to call table touch-ins. He would walk up and ask, hi, how are you doing? Can I refill your drink for you? Can I clear your tray for you? And when he introduced himself, this, this multi-billionaire walking into our restaurant in Southern California, he introduced himself 
to people and just simply said, Hi, I'm Dan. I'm in customer service here. For me, seeing Dan Cathy pick up trash and refill drinks at the same time lowered my guard and raised my standards. Here was the man at the helm of what was at the time a $15 billion a year company. Now it's over $20 billion a year with a handful of trash and a smile on his face. His humility in entering our restaurant lowered my guard so that I was no longer nervous to approach him or have him approach me, while at the same time, it raised my standard for myself and for my team of what it looked like to really serve. You see, when people who are in leadership positions, people who are above us, people in authority, important people, humble themselves to serve, it has this effect on the people around them, doesn't it? It, it at the same time lowers our guards and raises our standards. As we look at John chapter 13, we see Jesus give us an even greater example than the billionaire man who walked into my restaurant. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 13. John tells us, Now, before the feast of the Passover... That's important. This is the third time John has mentioned the Passover. This is the, the culmination that we're headed to in John's gospel. It's the third Passover feast. And at the previous two Passovers, Jesus has done things that have shown us, that have proclaimed to the world around him that he is the true king, that he is the one sent from God, that he is the true Passover lamb. And so John says, now it was before the Passover feast and when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I like John chapter 13 verse 1 because it, it's actually functioning as an introduction to the rest of the gospel of John. Not merely chapter 13. You could almost think of the gospel as having two parts. And at the end of chapter 12, closed out the first part. And now we're opening part two, which is all focused on the last few days of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. And John thinks it fitting to open this new part of the story with these words, that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, That's an active participle. It means Jesus had been loving them and he was still loving them. Now he loved them to the end. John is is telling us something about all of Jesus' actions from this point forward in the gospel. He's saying everything that Jesus does from this point on is all about Jesus showing his love to his own. It's all about Jesus loving his disciples, including us, to the very end. How does Jesus choose to show his love in this opening part of part two of the story? Look at verses two through five. It says that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Let's pause right there because there's, there's a lot of setting that John is giving us here. First, John tells us the relational setting. He says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And yet here's Judas at the table. He hasn't left yet to do his dirty deed. He's still in the company of the disciples. And John wants us to to see this juxtaposition of the love of Jesus even to the betrayer. We're going to talk more about Judas next week. So when you read a sentence like the devil had put it into the heart of Judas and you're like, what? That's it. What is going on? Don't lose those questions, okay? But just like put them on the shelf for one week. That's all I'm asking you to do. We're going to talk about Judas more next week. But I point this out just to say that John is giving us the the relational dynamic, the setting among this group of friends that Jesus is having supper with. 
He also gives us some theological context, though. In verse 3, it says that Jesus already knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, which means that what Jesus is about to do next, he does out of complete security in the knowledge of who he is and what he is here to do. He, he's not confused about his role in the world. He's, he's not trying to, to act out so that he can get some kind of affirmation from the people around him. Jesus is acting out of a place of security. And knowing all this, Jesus rose from the table. Can you, can you see the scene? I don't know if you spent much time imagining the Bible when you read. I hope you have, because it really enriches your reading. I wonder if you can see this scene as Jesus is at the table with his disciples. I think many of us probably have had our imagination shaped by some, some famous artwork of this scene. The, the Last Supper painting is one of the most paint, famous paintings in the world. One of the most widely distributed images, especially of Jesus. But it's not really accurate to what was going on here. If we imagine the Last Supper painting, what we imagine is Jesus and a bunch of dudes sitting on chairs at a table. And for some reason, they're all on one side of the table. Have you ever thought about that? This is not natural. This is, like, not okay. Who does this? It it just is weird if you think about it for two seconds. and And it's not actually historically accurate to what would have been happening. See, Jesus was reclining at table with his friends. In, in this time in history, a, a dinner table was not a, a four foot tall platform, or I don't know how tall dinner tables are, three foot, four foot tall. It was, it was a low platform, low to the ground, and all the diners would come around and literally recline on like a, a cushion or a couch low to the ground. Their heads would be closer to the table, their feet farther away, and they'd be lounging as they picked food off the table. So when it says that Jesus rose from supper, it's something a little bit more dramatic than politely wiping his chin with his napkin, pushing his chair out, and simply standing up. Jesus maybe rolled to his back and did a sit-up onto his... I don't know how he, how he got up. Maybe he, he struggled. Maybe he slipped in his hand. But he had to get up off of the floor to a full standing position. See, Jesus is, is removing himself from the company of disciples and, and raising up quite high over them while everyone else is still down on the ground. Immediately. You can imagine whatever conversations, side conversations, had been happening around the big table were silenced as heads turned simultaneously to the rabbi. Clearly, he's about to say something important. So we all wait with bated breath to hear the words of Jesus. But notice, he doesn't say anything. It says that he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Do you see Jesus standing up, taking the, all the effort it takes to get up off the ground and silently removing his cloak, maybe his tunic also, folding them and, and setting them aside. And then it says he went and got water and poured it into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here are the disciples all waiting, holding their breath to see what their master has to say, and he says nothing. Instead, he takes off his cloak, grabs a towel and a water basin, and begins washing his disciples' feet. But it's not even as simple as that because they're all still laying on the ground. Jesus had to go get the, the water basin and carry it over to one disciple, kneel down on the ground, dip his feet in the water, wash them off, dry them with the towel, pick up the basin, move to the next disciple and do it again. 
and again and again and again? Do you feel the air being sucked out of the room? Do you see the the confused looks on the disciples' faces as they turn their heads away from Jesus and back to one another with questioning glances? What does he think he's doing? We might think, oh, this is a very nice thing of Jesus to do. This is very very polite. What a gentleman, that Jesus. But this is not the kind of activity that a gentleman in this day typically found himself doing around a dinner table. See, Jesus was the the rabbi, the one with authority, the, the teacher. Someone in this kind of position would never be caught washing feet You might think, oh, well, it should have been the disciples' job, and Jesus is just doing this cool, like, turn it all on its head thing, and like, roll reversal. He does that sometimes. But it wouldn't have even been the disciples' job. They would have taken it upon themselves to do all kinds of stuff for Jesus, to to run errands for him, to get whatever he needed, to make sure that he was all set. But not even they would have washed Jesus' feet. No, this was a job only for the lowest servants. Only those... Household workers who had the very least seniority and were stuck on the lowest rung until someone else retired and somebody new got hired. That's the kind of job this is. Imagine the dirt caked onto the feet of these men who wandered the Judean countryside for the last three years following this Jesus. Now certainly this wasn't their first bath in three years. At least I... Hope not. But can you imagine how how dirty of a job this was? No one would have willingly done this unless they absolutely had to, and yet Jesus does. In fact, Jesus doesn't simply do the act of service. He actually embodies what it means to be a servant. It's as if Dan Cathy, instead of just simply doing table touch-ins, had actually put on my uniform and my name tag and, and started going around serving people. See, Jesus puts on the uniform of a lowest servant. He takes off his cloak, probably his tunic as well, and puts on nothing but a towel around his waist. He literally takes the form of a servant. He is saying all he needs to say without saying a word. He's humbling himself. And he he does this disciple by disciple, friend by friend, foot by foot, all the way around the table until he comes to Peter. Good old Peter. Look at verses 6 through 9 with me. It says that he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Can you hear the indignance in Peter's voice? He's saying, Jesus, why are you doing this? This is a bad idea. You should stop. This is is not right. You, You should absolutely... There's other people standing around that can do this. Jesus, what on earth are you doing? See, Peter understands the vast contradiction between who Jesus is and how he is acting. In his mind, culturally, the the Messiah, the Savior, the King, should have nothing to do with this kind of servant role or job. But Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. After what? After he gets done washing his feet? No, Jesus has something greater in mind. He says, Peter, trust me. Just just have a little faith. I know that you don't get it now, but later it's going to make sense to you. Of course, Peter wants nothing to do with this rebuke. So he says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Peter is so unable to grasp what Jesus is talking about that he directly refutes and contradicts Jesus. All he can think about is that it's it's culturally shameful for his master to be washing his feet. So he doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet because he doesn't want his dirt to rub off on Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to be ashamed because of how much 
cleaning up Peter has to do. Jesus answered him, though, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. At this point, we begin to see that Jesus is talking about something deeper than simply washing feet. I think that what Jesus is saying here is, look, if you won't accept me washing your feet, then you are not prepared to accept what is coming next. Because you might not realize this, Peter, but you need a whole lot more cleansing than just your feet. And I have something even greater planned. But if you can't even accept this little thing that I'm doing for you, you will never be able to accept what comes next. If you want to have a share with me, Jesus says, if, if you want to be welcomed in to participate in my resurrection life, you better let me serve you. You better let me wash you. Otherwise, you have no share. So Simon Peter said to him, then, Lord, not, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. This is classic Peter. Absolutely classic. Doesn't get it, doesn't get it, still doesn't get it, but now he's going to be more confident than ever. <laughs> Once he's in, he's, he's all in. He says, look, if, if I'm going to have to do this, if I'm going to have to be washed, you may as well go all the way. Why stop at my feet? Basically, Peter is telling him, Jesus, I don't get it, but I'm all in. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. See, Jesus is doing something here that we've seen many, many times over by now in John's Gospel. He's using a a natural, physical metaphor to invite us into a a deeper, spiritual, supernatural reality. When he talks about bathing and washing and being clean, he is not speaking about the physical, but about the spiritual. He's doing a physical act of foot washing to teach the disciples and us a spiritual truth about our need to be cleansed from sin. See, in this way, this this act of washing the disciples' feet is actually Jesus' way of pointing us forward in the story to his sacrificial death. I I wonder if we can see this together, because when I was reading this this familiar story this past time, and, and planning out this sermon with the group of pastors. We get together every week and, and outline sermons together, and we look a few weeks ahead. And, and as we were discussing this section, it became clear to us that this whole story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is actually a, a shadow, a foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion, of his sacrificial Death. And this past week, I was on a walk with Sarah, and I was telling her this, and I was like, yeah, it's really clearly like a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus, and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, hold on, stop, stop. You said that like it was a whole fact, and you didn't prove any of that. Like, how do you know that this is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus? Well, first I know because John hinted it to us way back in verse chapter 1. Second, I know because Jesus is telling us here in verses 6 through nine, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. That's bigger than just a foot problem that the disciples have going on. But, but when I think about Peter's response, man, I think about sometimes our response to the gospel. Jesus, or rather Peter says, Jesus, don't, don't you dare wash my feet. I don't want you to, to take on all that shame that is rightfully mine. Man, what do we do to Jesus on the cross? Sometimes we can be tempted to say, no, 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 Jesus, don't, don't, don't climb up there. You don't, you don't have to do that. I don't want you to take on all my shame. That, that's, that's mine. Sometimes we, we don't want Jesus to wash our feet because we don't know just how dirty they are. We think maybe we can take care of it ourselves. But sometimes, like Peter, we don't want Jesus to wash our feet because we know precisely how dirty 
they are. We don't want Jesus to have to cleanse our sin because we are afraid that some of our dirt might rub off on him. Friends, can I tell you that Jesus is strong enough to wash you clean without getting it on himself? That he is holy enough to wipe away your stains without staining himself. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus took on our dirt and our stain and took it to the cross to kill it dead. And when he came out of the tomb on the third day, he left all that behind. See, Jesus did take our dirt, our shame, our stain of sin, but it doesn't stain him anymore. But the thing that most convinced me that this is actually a a foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus happens in verse 12. You see, when Jesus had washed their feet, look what happens. He put back on his outer garments and he resumed his place. Come on, this text could preach itself. What happens after, after Jesus takes off His clothes kneels down to serve his friends in in humility and service. He puts them back on and he resumes his place. What happens in the gospel? Jesus doesn't take off his own clothes. They are stripped off him as he is beaten by Roman soldiers. A crown of thorn shoved upon his head. He is not knelt down in service, but rather lifted up in sacrifice on a cross. He's brought down and put into a grave, but on the third day, Jesus got back up and he resumed his place, did he not? We're told that that he ascended into the heavens and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. You see, this story, John is trying to tell us that our sin ain't going to stain Jesus. Jesus' humility in bending down to serve us doesn't ultimately affect his eternity because he's already back up and resuming his rightful place. Jesus gets up, he resumes his place, and he says to his friends, Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand what I have done for you? It's easy to read past that in this familiar story. But I think that Jesus and John are both hoping that this question will echo to our our ears after the resurrection. Do we understand what Jesus has done for us? What what kind of humility and service he has displayed to save us and bring us back when we were lost? But what's incredible about this story is that that Jesus doesn't leave it here. He He could leave this. At the end of chapter 12, and we would have a whole lot to chew on. We would have a whole lot to praise God for. We would have a whole picture of the gospel in just 12 verses. But Jesus takes it a step farther. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, check this, So you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus could have said, do you understand what I have done for you? You better praise me. You better worship me. But instead, he gave us an application, a way to actually express our praise and worship to him. And he said, if I, your master, your Lord, have served you... You better turn and serve one another. That's not different from praising God. It's actually a a means, a way of praising God. He says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And as far as I am aware, there is no other place in all the Gospels in which Jesus does something and then specifically tells his followers that that thing that he just did was an example for them to follow. I think that this is the only place Jesus specifically calls out his actions as an example for us. 
Now, of course, all of Jesus' life is an example because he was perfect and sinless. And if we could do that, we'd be doing pretty good. Like that, that's an example to follow. But this is the only place Jesus specifically says, follow my example. So what does that mean for us? That should make us sit up and pay attention. Thankfully, Target had enough basins that were big enough and, and washcloths that we've got some basins and washcloths in the back and we're going to bring it. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. I didn't even get any of y'all to look. That's disappointing. I got to work on that. I was not convincing enough. Nowhere in scripture or in like the earliest church documents is foot washing ever treated as a sacrament of the church. Like Jesus told us at, at the Last Supper, like take this and eat, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever y'all get together, remember me. So we have communion. We, we do that. That's a sacrament. The church has always done that. Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's a sacrament. The church has always done that. Jesus said, y'all better wash each other's feet. We've never done that. <laughs> it, it's not treated as a, a sacrament. Why? Because foot washing is not the point. It's basically a, a great sermon illustration to illustrate, to bring us to the point that Jesus was making. The point is that Jesus is inviting us into lives of humble service, modeled after him. Can we wash each other's feet? Sure. You have all the freedom in Christ to do that. God bless you. Go ahead. But the whole point of foot washing is to, to welcome us, to invite us in to this idea of humble service. So, so let's just take the next few minutes and ask, what does humble service look like? If we are going to take Jesus' invitation seriously, his command to follow his example seriously, what does humble service look like for us? I would suggest to you there are at least three parts to humble service. I like to say at least because there's always more. And someone's always going to tell me, well, what about this thing? Yeah, that's part of humble service too. But three is like a nice pastory number for a second. So, so we're going to go three parts of humble service. Here's, here's the first one, ability. Very, very simply, this is having the skills or the resources to serve other people. This can be... Different depending on the person, depending on the context, depending on the situation, depending on the need. Really, this could be anything. I don't think that there are certain skills that can be used to serve and certain skills that no one can ever use to serve. Like sometimes I think people think like, oh, I just don't have any skills that would be useful to anybody. Like I, I don't have any ability to serve anybody. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't really think that's true for, for any of us. Though. Maybe it's true in particular instances or, or situations. Maybe you don't have the particular skills needed for one person to, to serve them. Like if you have car trouble and you need someone to fix your car, I do not have the skills to come alongside you and fix your car. Don't ask me. I'll make it worse. Same with your computer. Okay, don't, don't do it. Don't know anything about it. But maybe I have access to a car that I'm not using that you could use until you get yours fixed. Or maybe uh, I've got some extra cash lying around this month and, and I might be able to bless you to use my resources to help you, to serve you, get your car up and running. Or maybe I just so happen to have a father-in-law who knows like everything about cars and he can help you. Okay? Don't ask him. Either. Well, you can ask him. He's, he's nice. He'll, he'll help you. I can still serve, even if I don't have all the necessary skills or abilities that are needed. Or I can help find someone else that can serve. Not only that, you know, skills and abilities can be developed. I don't know if you know that. Sometimes we say, well, I can't serve in that area. I don't have those skills. What we're really saying is, I don't want to take the time or the energy to get better at that thing so that I could serve. I don't want to take the time to, to learn that thing. So that I could serve. Sometimes that, that might be what we're saying. Some people would, would limit their service based on only what they're currently able to do or feel comfortable doing. But I think humble service is about not only knowing your ability to serve, but also growing in your ability to serve. Second thing that humble service includes is attitude. Attitude. 
Having the right attitude is necessary if we're going to participate in humble service. This is not necessarily having an active desire and passion to serve everyone and everything at every time. It is having a a fundamental disposition towards service. Sometimes I think maybe we say like we need the attitude of service. We think that means we have to feel like serving in order for it to count as humble service. But if you only serve when you feel like serving, that's self-serving, not humble serving. An attitude of humble service is a fundamental general disposition toward, you know what, I don't feel like serving right now, but I've got the ability and I know how to help. Or I'll, I'll, I'll make time, or maybe I can't help right now, but maybe next week. It doesn't mean you have to serve every single need that, that comes up because that's unrealistic. No one is ever going to be able to attain to that. But if we don't have an attitude that looks for opportunities to serve, has a disposition toward serving, we're not likely to obey Jesus' command to serve as he did. The third thing that humble service includes is action. Like we can have relevant abilities and right attitudes all day long. But when it comes down to it, if there is no action, there is no humble service. I mean, can you imagine how this scene could have played out differently? Jesus lounging around the table with his disciples, and instead of getting up and washing their feet, he sighs and he says, Guys, I just want you to know how much I love you. Here here it is. Here's, Here's how much I love you. If I wanted to, and I do, I do want to. I could get up right now. I could take off my cloak. I could grab that towel over there and that water basin and I could go around and wash every single one of your feet. Man, I would love to do that. Wouldn't that? I've got the right, I've got the ability to do that. I've got the attitude to do that. But if Jesus didn't actually get up and wash his disciples' feet, we wouldn't be talking about it 2,000 years later. Humble service requires action. Humble service is also something that, that needs to be practiced. Sometimes we can, we can get dismayed or discouraged when we try serving and we don't actually end up helping as much as we wanted to. Or, or maybe we get into a situation where we didn't really know what we were doing and we think, oh man, I, I'm not doing that again. Well, guess what? Humble service takes practice. The beautiful thing is that the more often we take action to serve, the more skilled we become in our ability, and the more our attitudes are actually shaped toward service. The action of of humbly serving forms us to be like Jesus. You could almost think of those three things as, as three legs of a stool, right? Ability, attitude, action. If you have any two without the other one, you probably don't have humble service. Right? If you have ability and attitude but no action, there's no service. If you have attitude and action but no ability, uh, it's probably not going to be any service anyways. There might not be very much humility there either. That might have to be explored individually. If, if you've got ability and action but no right attitude, there's not going to be humility in your service. We need all three of these things. So, so let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves... What ability do you have to humbly serve? What is your attitude like toward service? What action do you take on a regular basis to serve others humbly? Do those three things match up? Is is there one leg of the stool that's a little weak, needs to be tightened up a little bit? As, as we think about that, I, I want to highlight something in this text that Jesus doesn't say explicitly, but it's implied. Humble service is the norm for all Christians. Humble service is the, is the norm. Jesus gives this example for all of us to follow. Sometimes we can make service this like overly spiritualized thing where we think, oh... That kind of that humble service, that's for people who have some kind of gift 
of service. And and don't get me wrong, the, the spiritual gift of service is a thing. The Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers some people to, to serve in ways that they would not naturally do in themselves. But that does not negate the fact that Jesus is inviting all of us to participate in humble service. Some, sometimes we, we say, like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not gifted for that thing, that need, that, that neighbor's problem. I'm not, I don't have that gift, so I shouldn't be the one to serve them. Okay, sometimes that's true. If you can't sing, the worship team is not for you. Sometimes, like, there are things that the giftings do kind of have to... Singing is not a spiritual gift, by the way, but... So that analogy breaks down. But there are some giftings that really just don't match up with a need. But humble service is not about gifting as much as it is about ability, action, and attitude. Obviously, this, this plays out in all kinds of ways. Every relationship that you have in life, in all the places that we live, work, learn, and play, is an opportunity to practice this kind of humble service that Jesus is inviting us into. It doesn't happen just when we gather together as the church. And in fact, as I was outlining this message and, and as I was beginning to write it, I had resolved in my mind, I'm not going to talk about serving as part of the church gathering because I don't want to make humble service too narrow. I don't want you to think that as long as you're serving here, when we get together once a week, you're good. Like that's not what Jesus is. Jesus is inviting us into a life of humble service. But then as I was reading this text over and over again, and as I began writing, I felt the Lord leading me to to challenge us as a church a, a little bit. About how we serve when we gather together. And specifically, I, I, I felt God leading me and putting on my heart to challenge the men of the church, specifically the, the dads and the grandpas of our church. And we planted a year ago. We've been in the long season of, of building. We've been building community, building momentum, building teams, building relationship. And, and one of the teams that we probably mention more than any other on a regular basis is our kids. I think if there is one thing that we can do amazingly well as a church that, that is like if everything is important. But if we could make one thing the most important thing for us to do well, it's discipling the next generation to know, love, and serve Jesus. And so we talk about kids' ministry a lot. In the past few weeks, we've been talking about how we're trying to, to build up our team so that we can open up our five- to seven-year-old class, which is great that it's open today. But this is the one time this month that class is going to be open because we simply don't have the volunteers and the teachers for it. And over the past few weeks, as we've been talking about this, I've actually been really encouraged because four people have raised their hand to say, hey, I'll help teach that class. I need some training, but I want to step into that. I want to, I want to grow in my ability to serve. None of those four people have been men. And I... I want to be careful in how I say this because I, I want to celebrate and I'm incredibly thankful for the, the women, the moms, the teenagers who are the backbone of our kids. Who, who are discipling regularly our kids to know, love, and serve Jesus as we gather together. I know discipleship happens outside of this time and we celebrate that too. But, but I'm not trying to downplay the fact that the women of our church have been incredibly faithful in serving our kids. At the same time... I want to say to to dads that if the men of the church do not step into this area of service, to see our kids be discipled, to know, love, and serve Jesus with their whole lives, then we as a community are not embodying humble service very well to our families. If, If you're looking, men, teenagers, grandpas, dads, for an opportunity to, to begin practicing this kind of humble service and you feel like you need a little structure to help you get started, can I just direct you to the classrooms of our kids? I know that might be intimidating. I know oftentimes parents in general and, and for some reason dads especially, it seems like, not just here, but in basically every church I've been in, feel ill-equipped or unprepared to enter into that kind of space. 
to, to lead a, a group, not only of their kids, but of other people's kids. Other people's kids? Are you kidding me? Y'all know how other people raise their kids? Uh, you want me to enter into a group of other people's kids and teach them about Jesus? Others simply just really don't feel any excitement about serving in that area, or maybe, maybe they, they feel like they're not gifted in that area. But can I tell you something? Spiritual gifts are not bound by the age range that you're serving. Ain't nobody in the church ever had the spiritual gift of toddlers. <laughs> ever. Some people have a passion to work with toddlers, but that is not a spiritual gift. Nobody has ever had the spiritual gift of preteens. Ever. So to say, I don't have the gifting to, to work with that age group doesn't even make any sense. Humble service is more about ability. And, and any dad who leads his family in discipleship and spiritual development, any dad, grandpa, adopted dad, stepdad, whatever, any man who is praying with his family, reading the Bible with his kids, discussing spiritual things, teaching his kids about Jesus, has the ability to do that with other kids too for an hour every couple weeks. I don't think that the question of leading our families well is one of ability, but one of attitude and action. Will we have the right attitude and the right action to humbly serve not only our own family, but all of the families that make up our church family? Okay, I'm not saying that every man should go sign up for our kids today. It's not some kind of like guilt thing. I know there's a lot of men that are serving in other areas of the church. I'm not trying to burn anybody out. I'm just trying to, to say I, I see this gap in our community. And I'm asking y'all, how can we help address this gap by humbly serving together? It's also not just for, for dads or for men. Okay, let, let's, let's pull, I, I zoomed in for a little bit. Let's, let's zoom back out. Don't want to leave anybody out. This, this is a command and an invitation for all of us in our lives. What are the things that prevent us from humble service? There's probably as many answers to that question as there are people in this room. But I think if we talked about it for long enough, we could probably boil it down to a few things. Primarily, pride. I think sometimes we can't even recognize the own pro- our own pride that keeps us from humbly serving in ways that God might be putting right in front of us, whether it's in relationship with a neighbor, a friend, our kid's friend, whatever it may be. Pride most obviously looks like someone who kind of has a consumeristic mentality when it comes to church, who comes and consumes and who sits and says, how can the church serve me? And not asking, how can I, as the church, serve others? That's the most obvious way, but I, I think that there are some, some sneakier ways that pride can creep its way into our hearts and minds. Sometimes pride is expressed by only, conser- only serving when it's most convenient. Sometimes disciples will say, look, I, I'm too busy to serve other people right now. It's not a good time for me. It's not a good season for me to serve other people right now. It might not be a good season for you to serve in a certain way right now, but that doesn't mean it's not a good season for you to serve in general. That can be rooted in pride because it can be a way of valuing your own convenience, your own comfort, even your own schedule above humbly serving others. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that this would be hard for us. And he actually diagnoses pride as the primary cause behind not humbly serving. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. We'll, we'll wrap up the passage and we'll, we'll end our time. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you what? Oh, I lost everybody. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you... Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you if you know these things. Blessed are you if you have the right attitude. 
toward these things. Blessed are you if you feel really good about these things. Blessed are you if you are excited about these things. Jesus says that if you know these things, the blessing comes in the participation, in the, in the taking action. Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus in these verses is essentially saying that to ignore his example and to refuse to humbly serve others is to make ourselves greater than him. That's pride. He, he says that a servant is never greater than his master. Implication, if the master asks you to do something and the servant says no, or if the master does something himself and the servant refuses to do the same thing, what we're really doing is lying to ourselves about ourselves. We're, we're, we're making ourselves out to be more than we are in our own minds, putting us above Christ in some way or another. No servant is greater than the master, and our master humbled himself. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the the Son of God, the Master who deserves to be served, and yet He humbles Himself to serve us. Jesus serves us by entering into human history, into our experience, so that we can enter into the places where people around us live, work, learn, and play to serve like Jesus. See, that's the heart of the matter, friends. Simply serve like Jesus. Jesus serves us by taking our brokenness upon himself so that we can serve others who are experiencing brokenness. Jesus serves us by interceding for us at the right hand of the Father so that you and I can serve others by coming alongside them, sitting at their right hand and lifting them up to the Father together. Jesus serves us by providing for our every need so that you and I can provide for others who are in need. Jesus serves us by giving us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to convict us, to comfort us, to defend us so that we can confidently serve others, not in our own strength, but in his. Jesus serves us so that we can serve like him. He's given us his Holy Spirit, which means we have the ability Do we have the attitude? And will we take action? Well, congrats. You made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.